Okay, we're going to get started. Thank you all for coming today. I'm Rob Penzer. I'm the Associate Director of the Helix Center. Uh, we're going to launch right into uh, the introductions for today's program, The Search for Immortality, which is part of the Templeton Foundation-funded series, Science and the Big Questions. If uh, our participants could raise his or her hand when I announce your name so that uh, people will know you. Martin Hegland is Professor of Comparative Literature and Humanities at Yale. He's the author of three books, most recently, Dying for Time, Proust, Wolf, Nabokov, and Radical Atheism, Derrida and the Time of Life. His work has been the subject of a conference at Cornell, a colloquium at Oxford, and a special issue of CR, the New Centennial Review. In 2014, he was awarded the Schuch Prize by the Swedish Academy, and his next book, This Life on Secular Faith, will be published by Pantheon. Chris Impey is a university distinguished professor and deputy head of the Department of Astronomy at the University of Arizona. He has over 170 refereed publications on observational cosmology, galaxies, and quasars, and is the recipient of grants from NASA and the NSF, as well as multiple teaching awards. He's also the author of many popular articles on cosmology and astrobiology, and two introductory textbooks, as well as a novel called Shadow World, and six popular science books, most recently, Dreams of Other Worlds and Humble Before the Void. His next book on the future of space travel is called Beyond, and it's to be published by Norton. Adam Kirsch is a senior editor at the New Republic and a columnist for Tablet Magazine. He's the author of two books of poetry, The Thousand Wells and Invasions, and several other books, including most recently, Rocket and Lightship, Essays on Literature and Ideas. Sheldon Solomon is professor of psychology and Ross professor of interdisciplinary studies at Skidmore College. As an experimental social psychologist, his interests include the nature of self, consciousness, and social behavior. His work has been supported by the National Science Foundation and the Ernst Becker Foundation. He's the co-author of In the Wake of 9-11, Psychology of Terror, and co-founder of the World Leaders Project. He's a fellow in the American Psychological Society and the Society for Experimental Social Psychology and recipient of multiple professional honors. Polly Young Eisendrath is a Jungian analyst and author of 15 books, including The Self-Esteem Trap, The Resilient Spirit, and Women and Desire. Her most recent book, The Present Heart, A Memoir of Love, Loss, and Discovery, is an unsentimental meditation on the healing power of love in the face of early-onset Alzheimer's. Having taken formal Zen vows in 1971, she's interested in the dialogue between two meditative and cont contemplative practices, Buddhism and psychoanalysis. She maintains a clinical and consulting practice in central Vermont. And now, without further ado. I can't move. Can you turn the air conditioner off? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll start and provoke by saying my opinion, immortality is both impossible and a bad idea. But not to be Debbie Downer out of the gate, let me just uh, throw out the idea that the container for immortality is the universe, as we understand it, all space and time. And we've learned some slightly uncomfortable truths about the universe in the last 50 years, among which is the eventual fate of the universe being a sort of entropic cold death as the universe thins out, gets sparser, matter decays, galaxies evaporate, black holes even evaporate, and so on. So um, however we conceive of a continuing conscious entity or entities, 
it's within a larger context where you're swimming against a pretty fierce current whose name is the second law of thermodynamics. And, and, and the last point I'll make on that is that Sir Arthur Eddington, probably the greatest theoretical astrophysicist of the 20th century, wrote a popular book on thermodynamics. And he said, you know, if your pet theory, you know, uh, disagrees with observation, well, these observationalists bungle sometimes. But if your theory disagrees with the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. You should kneel in abject humiliation. on the table, I think that um, when we talk about immortality, the search for immortality, we tend to talk about two very different things. On the one hand, I would say a lot of things that are classified under that rubric would be forms of what I would call living on, that is to say, ways in which we search to prolong our lives, so the lives of those we love, or in these days of climate change, uh, prolonging the life of the planet itself. Uh, but that form of uh, desire to live on doesn't seem to be me to, be, to me to be a search for immortality at all. That is to say, it's a prolongation of a life that is subject to death and loss and so on. Uh, and it's actually partly animated by that. That is to say, that part of the reason that I want to prolong my own life with the life of someone I care about is precisely because I sense that it can be lost. You know, and, and that dynamic of like searching to live on or to find ways for us to prolong and enhance our lives, uh, I'm very happy to endure. Uh, but the other thing we talk about, I think, when we talk about search for immortality is the search for eternity, which would not be life living on in time, but would be a timeless state of being. Uh, that w and if you're aiming for eternity, you're not aiming to prolong your life, you're aiming to escape it uh, to a totally different state of being. And that doesn't seem to me, that seems to me not only, as you said, impossible, but also undesirable. Let's say, if I, if I were no longer subject to the strictures of time, I would no longer be myself. So it wouldn't be a form of survival for me at all. And it doesn't even seem to me to be a consolation. So I think that we'll see where we can go. But that distinction, for my thinking on these issues, that's a very important uh, primary distinction between like, are you, when you're talking about immortality, are you talking about decide to live on or decide to be eternal? And so it's just something to put up there. Were you saying you were opposed to both of them? No, 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 um, just uh, the second one. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't think if I was opposed to the first one, I'd probably be breathing uh, right now, right? And so, so you know, it, 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 so I'm very engaged in the first one. I think that's a you know a constitutive um, uh, engagement. But but the idea um, that uh, that it would be desirable to leave behind that condition altogether, the condition of mortality altogether, in favor of timelessness or eternity, that seems to me something that should not just be uh, held to be impossible, but there should also be other reasons why that's not even desirable. So, uh, but the fact that I, that I affirm mortality doesn't mean that I want to die. It means I want to keep on being mortal. I want to prolong my life in various ways. The Greeks seem to characterize us as mortals, right? Right, but it's a very, so, inter it's yes, a very interesting shift know. that happens, though, because you have uh, in say, Homeric Greek religion, you don't have any sense of a salvation through eternity or timelessness. Right. On the contrary, the emphasis on the, is on, are on the goods of this life, right? But this is precisely what Plato will criticize right. with, with Homer, saying that, like, well, if that's what you're attaching yourself to, you're also attaching yourself to all these forms of suffering, and the aim should actually be to uh, exit from that. And you have something similar happening with the emergence of Hinduism and Buddhism in the East. That is, say, in early Vedic religion, immortality in Sanskrit, amartam, just means 
living for a really long time, or non, like a hundred years, say, to live on in that sense. Whereas, but then when you start having sort of salvation religions emerging, what will eventually become like the Buddhist notion of nirvana is precisely saying, no, the, the, the wisdom would be to try to exit from that struggle to live on in that sense and instead enter sort of timeless bliss or eternity. So, that, so I think the distinction well, crops I, up. Yeah, I, would, I would argue a bit about the notion of nirvana yeah. because in later forms of Buddhism, nirvana is also subject to impermanence, both samsara and nirvana, but, uh, but just not to <laughs> enter into casually. I, I was just so agreeing with what Chris said and um, that immortality, whether it's an individual immortality for one's own consciousness or immortality on some other scale, seems to me to be both impossible and undesirable. And I know for myself personally, um, I wouldn't have any investment in being Polly Young Eisendrath forever. I mean, it seems bad enough to be engaged with it, you know, on an ongoing day-to-day -day basis and to have and to see um, the nature of one's limitations and difficulties and to think that those would be <laughs> going on you know, ad infinitum would <laughs> seem to me to be not a very good proposition. Um, so, yeah, I was kind of curious about why the subject came up at all, you know, the subject of immortality, um, because, um, uh, <laughs> you know, I don't know if there are people who are here who are in favor of it. I, uh, I don't know how the subject came up, but it came up. <laughs> but I, I, in your first cla the classification, the first group of immortality. But I, yeah, just to be clear, Paul said, I'm not saying living on forever. I mean, that part of the yes. difficulty of that is that, of course, if we would go on for too long, it can become unbearable, etc. And like, so, so, so the first, I'm just saying a lot of things that are often classified as testifying to desire for immortality. Yes already in the Otima speech in symposium, like the desire to have children, to procreate, all of these things that supposedly testify to our innate desire for immortality, I think are better understood as a desire to prolong a life in time, not to become eternal, and not even to live forever in time, which I think would cancel itself out and become impossible. So, 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 but, so I just want to draw that distinction. That I'm not clear when it stops. Where it stops? The, the first, the, the distinction you make. At yeah, which that, point does it stop and you say, uh, well, I had this much, now I don't want yeah, to there's no aim fixed, for a few more years. Part of the difficulty, I think, is that there's no fixed measure for that. Right. That's part of the difficulty of living in time. Like, you, know, you, you can die too soon, but you can also die too late. And what is too soon or too late, it, there's no external measure for that. That's, that's, that's part of an internal dynamic. And it can be this wonderfully smooth sliding scale. There's a, a brilliant prescient paper by Freeman Dyson at the Institute of Advanced Studies in the late 1970s. Um, it was life in an eternal universe and he made the point, alluding again to thermodynamics, that it, even in an ancient, you know, ancient old cold universe, future civilization or life forms could uh, continue almost indefinitely by drawing down by essentially just pacing themselves, you know, diminishing returns into the almost infinite future. An asymptote, as you draw down on the energy of the microwave background radiation, which is free and out there, but diminishing in strength. 
So, I mean, it's a, you know, that's a, that's a continuous, there's no place to put a demarcation and say this is enough or this is super long and this is immortal. Um, and, that's, uh, and that actually, he was almost making a plausible scenario for how some civilization, not ours, might actually endure for what would seem like a very long time, trillions of years. Well, I would turn into that distinction that you're making um, is, would be the idea of, of indefinite prolongation, that if we were to know, and we, we believe we know that the universe will end at a certain in a certain inconceivably distant time. Although I would ask, um, we've known things with equal certainty in the past that turned, turned out not to be true. So it's possible that we will know something different in 500 years or 1,000 years. Um, but if we were to be able to say on such and such a date, this will be the end of the human race, what would that do to all human endeavor? Um, there's a, a wonderful book and movie called Children of Men, um, whose premise is at a certain time, human beings stop being able to reproduce. And so the people who are alive at, in the near future know that they're going to be the last human beings. And what that does to society and, and individual psychology, it would be, I think, a complete disaster. It would be, there would be no point in doing anything. There would be no higher ambitions, um, no art, no culture. There would be no... Uh, science, there would be no need for any of those things because sort of built in to the basic structure of our experience of the world is that it goes on. And in a certain sense, we can't truly understand the idea of a mortal world, I think. We can't truly accept the idea of a world that's going to end. Um, we can accept to a certain extent, although maybe we can't truly know what it means to accept the fact that we individually, each one of us, is going to end. But the idea that the entire thing is going to end, all humanity, I think is as close to unthinkable as we can, we can get. Well, that, that's, so that's a very important uh, other distinction in the discussion. The, you know, we talk about the immortality in the sense of the self, and we're clearly attached to the self as a notion and a as our actuality that we live with. But the, that example is where the collective, you know, enduring is what matters, you know. And if the collective enduring has no meaning or, or will be seen to have no meaning, then the personal enduring becomes equally meaningless. Right. I wonder if there might be something also about the, um, the distinction between immortality and eternity that has to do with, on the one hand, human experience of the unbearability of change and what might happen and the unbearability of the absence of change. Yeah, I mean, that's part of the dynamic that is captured by what is involved in, 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 in the horizon of a living on, which ties into what Adam was saying. Uh, I would just add uh, one thing. To what, I think that it's true on the one hand that you need to have the sense, you need to have a sort of futural horizon for our actions to make sense. And in that sense, you, and that has to be somehow indefinite. That is to say, uh, along the dynamics. But on the other hand, I also think you need to have the sense that it can end. Uh, not a certainty when exactly it will end. So, 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 so the flip side of what the dynamic you're describing is that also, uh, if I had the sense that whatever I care about or invested in will just endure by itself, the intensity of my commitment to it would also be lessened. So, 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 I, so, so uh, while it might be true that contemplating the complete extinction of that temporal horizon is, is something, you, you also 
uh, part of that dynamic of indefinite prolongation is also the sense that like it can be lost and hence has to be sustained. Uh, and, and that would go both for individual actions and, and I think for our more collective horizons that part of, even when we devote ourselves to a project that extends beyond our conceivable lifetime, part of the reason why we are devoted to it is the sense that it's because we have the sense that it will not exist just by itself. It has to be sustained by effort, individual or collective. So, so, you, so you need the horizon of possible prolongation, but also possible end for, for the sort of motivational dynamics to, uh, to be at work, I think. Um, I also think there's a, an assumption about life becoming meaningless in the face of uh, impermanence, you know, and the end of our existence or our world, and that both in Chinese and Japanese Zen, there are forms of practice that would specifically go against any sort of forward thinking. And uh, to practice with the immediate arising and the impermanent nature of our experience and our perceptions gives a very different feel to life, a very much less future-oriented in um, the geography of thought, Richard Nesbitt talks about the real contrast between the Chinese worldview and the Greek worldview, and how the Chinese were never striving for the eternal or the stable or the permanent as the Greeks were. And we've been very much more influenced in Western culture by the Greeks. And we don't have, in many ways, a frame of reference for say the fourth and fifth century Chinese poets, uh, some of whom lived in the mountains by themselves and created art that would fade overnight because they were interested in that experience and not some other enduring experience. So I think you can become interested in and sensitive to uh, a deep impermanence that doesn't leave you without meaning if you knew that everything would go away tomorrow. And, and yeah. yet some people might think that the culture we're embedded in right now is, you know, is the height of impermanence and evanescence. The, the clock of the long now, the Stuart Brand project, was, is notable because right. it's one of the very few endeavors designed to create something that will last you know, right. hundreds of generations. And then in a culture where we have almost impermeable and durable technologies and materials, we do almost none of that. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I don't know, it's somewhat paradoxical, the whole issue of permanence and impermanence. I mean, within, within any larger framework, everything is impermanent. But within a moment-to-moment -moment engagement, it does matter whether you take one position or another, favoring something like, um, you know, a, 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 limit, a limitless future versus a very, very short moment that arises and passes away. And uh, you know, so in many of the Buddhist forms, and again, particularly the earlier Chinese, uh, there are practices to um, you know, focus you on this kind of deep impermanence, and that that is the value of becoming aware of that, which um, you know, if there were some greater uh, understanding of it in our society, perhaps there would be less um, fear of, of one's own death and less engagement in exhaustive health interventions right at the end of life, which is something that I thought you were kind of going after in something that you said earlier that 
there are pragmatic reasons to, um, to maybe revision what it means to die, you know, at this period of time. Uh, because so many people invest in extending their lives by a very short period of time, right at what they take to be their dying time. They want to go for a month more or two weeks more or whatever, and it's very, very expensive and often also um, very costly in terms of pain and suffering. Yeah. Just to put a little bit of pressure on what you were saying, First, I mean, because there's, there's a version, I think, where, where the embrace of impermanence, the supposed embrace of impermanence is actually a very established way of trying to gain eternity in the sense of, like, becoming uh, immune or invulnerable to the experience of loss. That is to say, like, so a lot of these strategies, we have them in Western Stoicism, for example, where, where like, the reason you, you're, you're told that it would be wise to stop being future-oriented is because when you're future-oriented, you're giving hostages to the, to the future, to something that's unpredictable, and you're attached to something that can be taken away from you. Right. Uh, and I would say that's the real experience of mortality. And, 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 the, and the aspiration to immortality or eternity is, is to try to get a state where you would be invulnerable to that type of loss. So, so, in my, so, so, so the sort of Buddhist practices you're talking to me are, for me, like a prime example of trying to gain eternity in the sense, not of like living forever, but of being immune to the experience of loss. Because if I don't invest in the future, I can't lose anything. I'm just in the moment. So by, but I think, like, and that's, but that for me, that's not really embracing impermanence because uh, that's actually uh, for you to experience something as impermanent and that to have like sort of a pain and a force to it, you have to be projecting towards at least a temporary permanence. Uh, and, and, and I think that this attempt to be in the moment is another attempt to be uh, exempt from time or exempt from the sort of pain of mortality. Maybe in yeah. early Buddhist practices it was initially, but as Buddhism evolved over time, especially in the Chinese forms, um, that changed somewhat, that shifted somewhat. I think in the early Theravadan forms there was a desire to get off the wheel of samsara and not to actually continue. And as you get into the Mahayana forms, they really are more about staying in experience but recognizing its impermanence and staying with that impermanence. So, you know, it does change over the history. I mean, I would agree with you about early Buddhism that it was I that. Mean, we we don't have to get into I, I think it's true of Mahayana. It's the staying in. I think it's still in that end, but we can have that discussion. Yeah, so but later. I was going to ask from if you could take a cultural perspective mm. on, you know, it doesn't have to be purely Western culture, but the, you know, the dominant cu culture and economic force of the planet where ephemera are all around us, and yet we sort of act as if we have infinite resources, etc. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, one way to think about it is that we've moved from a long period, maybe all of human history, until the last two or three hundred years, in which people were confident of some kind of personal immortality, even if um, the, let's say, let's say the, from Christianity, uh, we have the West very invested in idea of personal immortalities to the extent that it becomes impossible to think outside the idea of immortality. So I think of someone like Maimonides, for example. Maimonides develops a highly intellectualized idea of what it means to be eternal, that you're eternal if you think uh, about God, that you participate in his eternity, 
um, and that it's sort of an intellectual eternity, and that's something that Spinoza picks up on later. But even in that sense, there has to be some accommodation to the idea of eternity. Um, to a materialist view of the world in which eternity is the one thing that we are not allowed to imagine or envision for ourselves. Um, and I think that the idea that you would want to prolong your life, for example, uh, even for a week or a month, doesn't that make perfect sense if, that, if life is the only value? I mean, outside of life, there's no value. So if there's no eternity, if values are something that we create and posit for ourselves in the course of our lives, then not to be alive is to lose the chance to participate in that process completely. Um, it makes perfect sense that you would want to stay alive as long as you possibly could, even under adverse circumstances. Um, even from a, if not from a sort of prudential point of view, then from a metaphysical point of view, it makes sense. Um, and that goes hand in hand with the decline, I think, of the idea of immortality as a form of glory. In other words, the idea that you would create an artwork that would outlast time, that you would have permanent glory from from something that you had made or done, that your name would live on, I think is an ambition that very few artists today share. When you're talking about self-destructing artworks, I was thinking of Tengeli and uh, the idea that you would make something that's designed to decay. Um, again, something that would have been quite foreign, at least in Western tradition, up until the last hundred years, but now we're sort of forced to confront it. Um, there, it it's a... It's a major change. It's a change that goes so deep that it's, I think, even hard to conceptualize and in a way alienates us from a lot of our own cultural heritage because it depends on assumptions that we can no longer truly share. This is a little random, but I, I think physicists of my acquaintance, and that was my original training, they, they sort of reach for immortality through mathematics right. because they believe it to be, some, in a platonic sense, a, an, an ideal that holds not just in this part of space-time but elsewhere. It could be discovered by other sentient creatures and you know, creates in the practitioner at some level transcendental experience and so on. It's an interesting thing. I'm not, I haven't reached that level, but I've got close to people who haven't explained it well. So you don't? I mean, I was listening to Brian Green in one of these things talking at the Rubin Museum, and he was advocating that position. But it, it, it always seems to me peculiar because my background is as a developmental psychologist, Piaget and that kind of thing. And so I don't understand how mathematics then as a practice falls outside of subjectivity. How could it? Because human beings have practiced it and invented it. So how could it be the language of God, for example? No, you're right. There's there's overreach there, and I think Max Tegmark, who's a colleague, I, I, mean, I like him and know him well. You know, he espouses the layers of, you know, reality and awareness and the fundamental, you know, Pythagorean idea of a mathematical universe. And it, it's a it's an aesthetic. I mean, it's a pure aesthetic. And as an aesthetic, I agree. It's lo it's it's locus is in our psyche and in our psychology and. Yeah, I don't, I think that's a conceit to imagine that it's universal in the way that that's sometimes presented. That's a relief. <laughs> Just to follow up on what Adam was saying, I mean, I, I agree with a lot of the um, sort of canvas that you painted for us. But uh, again, I think once one distinguishes between aspirations to live on and aspirations to eternity, I think some of the discontinuities that you outline are less forceful. Uh, so so uh, 
as distinct from, say, a Christian aspiration to eternity, uh, the, the uh, ambition for the artwork to live on. You know, I mean, if you think about the poetic expressions of this in Shakespeare, Keats, etc., there is there is an intense awareness both of the possibility to live on, say, through the breath of the speaker who will reanimate the poem, but there's also an intense sense of like this is not a given; uh, it can just be left to die, not reanimated by the reader. And even if it is reanimated, that's not about eternity. It's precisely about prolonging its capacity to speak across the ages. You know? and, so, and, and so that's an investment. I mean, what we call poetic immortality, I think, is actually uh, an investment in a certain form of living on. And I think we can, and, and which is, you know, another version of that is what you yourself recognize as relevant in the contemporary world, that I want to live for another week or another two weeks. I mean, so, so, so that dimension of, of our aspiration to live on, I think we can, uh, we can recognize across the ages much more. And, and, and I think that maybe we, we can have it more explicit now because we don't have to the same extent the investment in, in an opposing concept of eternity. But, but, I, but I do think that, uh, uh, I mean, I'm someone who, who works professional literature and, and, and I, as, as you do too. And I, and I certainly don't feel alienated from the pathos of Keats or Shakespeare in, in, in their investment in, in poetry's capacity to live on. I just don't think that it has anything to do with a commitment to eternity or, or a non-material. It's a, in very many ways a materialist conception because it depends on the material of the poems surviving and reanimated, etc. So Yeah. Well, maybe it's because in the classical or Christian world you had a confidence in the perpetuity of human civilization. In other words, you didn't envision a catastrophic end to your civilization, whereas we live with that possibility all the time and basically take it for granted in a certain way. I think if you asked most people today what they believe, will there be civilization in a thousand years? Um, I don't know what the answer would be, but I assume that many, if not most people, would probably say no. And then the question is, what are we what are you doing it for? I mean, the Romans, for example, so Horace says, Horace says, non omnis moriar, I will not, not all of me will die. The part of me that lives on is the poem. But if you know that the poem is going to die, then in fact all of you does die. And that's the situation that I think artists today are faced with. And there, so there has to be a much more, um, I mean, that's a sort of postmodern aesthetic, the idea that what you're doing is not for the ages, it's not for eternity, it's not um, meant to synthesize all of human experience, but it's an intervention, it's playful, it's a rearrangement, um, something like that, which can look sort of like you're playing in the ruins of, of a culture that we no longer really sustain. I guess it's still different for me between for the ages and for eternity. That mm. is to say, like, I guess I don't, especially in Shakespeare and Keats, great examples of this sort of aesthetic, I, I, um, I don't see there investment in, say, poetry's capacity to live on, to be dependent on the notion that there will always be someone to read it. It's just the horizon that someone can read it and reanimate it. Uh, so, so, But there yeah. always has to be at least someone, right? Right, but, but it could also be no one. I mean, I think that's a part of the pathos of, the, of these. Th there's a sense in both Keats and Shakespeare that it's also possible that, like, that, uh, that me having written this does not guarantee that it will be reanimated. There's, some, there's, a, there's a chance. But there's also the possibility that no one will read it, and that it will be left to its own, or even destroyed as uh, in its material support. Uh, and I don't think that prospect would have dissuaded them from their investment mm. in, 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 in poetry. If you think about the sonnets, I mean, Shakespeare's how intense, what an intense sense of 
absolute mortality there is in the sonnets, you know? And, 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 that, and, and just as the father's second law of thermodynamics, it generates a counter-response. But that counter-response is partly animated by the sense that that threat is very real and irreducible. Uh, so, But do you think that's... Was that why they were doing it? Was that important part of the rationale and yes. the motivation? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, just as I think that like whatever we do is informed by a sense that uh, if we don't do it, it will not be, and even if we do it, it might not last. And that's, that's both an inspiration and, and, and an inspiration to fear. And As opposed to just being able to express in the moment a, a truth of a culture or, or a human truth and convey it, communicate yeah, it think, to others. That's not sufficient? No, I, think, I, think we, I think we never live in just a moment. We always live in a, in a sort of future horizon. So. I wonder if there has been a change, though, in um, our aesthetic as well as what, might, what you might take to be a sort of an, an assumptive framework since, the, um, since our understanding of entropy and un, the uncertainty principle and relativity, all of these things that have come about through the natural sciences and have essentially given a, a kind of an umbrella to our culture for understanding its um, uh, devolution or whatever, if that's sort of permanently changed our perspective in a way that then we could read back into the romantics even more of this sort of engagement with, um, you know, something that would be like the um, conflict between permanence and impermanence, you know. I mean, I, I feel like we've changed a great deal in this recent period of time since modernity, basically, and that we're still uh, reacting to those changes as a culture. And I wonder if they could lead to a place where there would be, and maybe this is making a big leap, but a greater acceptance of individual death, you know, that, that it is not something to be fought so strongly uh, now, I saw the movie Interstellar recently, <laughs> and I was really kind of unhappy with the second half of it. I thought it was kind of a mess, even though it had a lot of consulting from physicists and so on. Um, but, you know, there was the um, Dylan Thomas uh, poem, you know, uh, weaving its way through there about not going gently into the night. And I was thinking... Um, gosh, that seems out of line with the movie somehow. I don't know. I mean, it seems to me there are, there are sensibilities that are arising, and not just um, you know, in academic frameworks, but on, in the popular realm as well, uh, that would say it might be possible to, to um, accept endings, accept one's own death, accept the uh, kind of deep uncertainty of our existence, that that might be kind of cool, <laughs> you know, that, that seems to be a change. From, and, yet, uh, and yet it exists in parallel with a quite well-funded research agenda to reproduce us in silicon as yeah, well yeah. as that can be done, or yeah. computationally in some generic sense that we don't quite understand, but it's and who, motivate. who funds that? Various, various you know. Uh, 
It happens, it happens a lot in California. The, uh, the like military industrial complex funds part of it. Uh, the NSF funds some of it. It's, it's funded all over the place. You know, up the road from where I live in Phoenix, Alcor has 250 Frosties on liquid nitrogen, you know, last in, first out. You know, you just hope the technology gets better. But are those, I mean, this may be just, again, a sort of stupid sideline, but are those just very wealthy individuals? You know, who know. want to be, you know, uh, who get a chance to leap in. I met a very wealthy Chinese man at a conference that I did in Switzerland this summer, and he said, oh, there's no question that we'll be able to extend human life to at least 300 years, and, you know, and there are a lot of people signing up for it. And there they're going to be... There are a few of those, <laughs> but they're mostly sort of techies, programmers, uh, uh, visionary slash nerd, whatever. And there are a few, although this is illegal and not... Sub, sub judice that sort of knew that they didn't want to go out old, so they euthanized quite young. Oh. So there are some that are frozen who are in their 20s. The or true so. romantics. Yes, indeed. But isn't it, uh, I mean, there is much less anxiety about being immortal than there is about being mortal. Less anxiety, did you say? But being immortal. Yeah. I don't There's see people being afraid that, oh, you know, I'm panicked because I'm going to be immortal. But people are scared about death. They don't want to look at dying. They don't want to look at mortality. It's avoided constantly, except in an intellectual way. So even though you say be eternity and so on is not something to, that is sought after, but people want to live forever. And uh, I'm not so sure at which point somebody, if, if you could take a pill that you took it once a day, and after the age of 25, 26, 30, you didn't age. Yeah. You stayed the same, and you kept going. At which point would you stop taking the pill? Right. So um, thank you, because that uh, ties into something I want. So part of the point of the distinction for me is uh, it's very important. Just because I don't want to be eternal doesn't mean that I want to die. Uh, in fact, the reason I don't want to be eternal is that that would be the death of me. Uh, that there would be no life left for me to live in eternity. So, so personally, I, I don't think, I want to distinguish very sharply, and maybe this is different from both, between the rejection of eternity and the so-called acceptance of mortality. I mean, I'm not sure that we know what we mean by accepting uncertainty or accepting death. If that, because if, if that means being able to embrace it fully, then I would say, if I accept uncertainty in that sense, there is no longer any uncertainty. Part of the difficulty of uncertainty is precisely that I can't embrace it because I don't know what it's going to be. It's not something I can accept in advance. And similarly, if I can accept death in the sense of like, I'm fine with that I die or that my beloved dies, I no longer have a relation to death as death. So I think that like, it's also, so it's not a matter of like, for me, it's not a matter of accepting death, but accepting that I will never accept it. That is to say, that, 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 and that you can't settle that limit in advance, that like, you know, again, I could live too long, I could live too short, but there's no way in which I can uh, adjust myself in such a way that I'm prepared in advance to the difficulty and pain of uncertainty and death. And I think that like, uh, the idea that we could master that relation to uncertainty and death through some sort of acceptance, I think, um, yeah, I'm very, very about that way of thinking. Yeah, I mean, though you seem to make this contrast between uncertainty and living. Like, living seems to have a lot of uncertainty in it, not just death. 
So living, you know, actually means facing uncertainty. So the degree to which one faces that uncertainty yeah. is actually perhaps related to something of one's engagement with life itself rather than with the rigidities of self-protection. Absolutely. You know, and so it doesn't seem to me to be the case that uncertainty is necessarily connected to death. No, absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, it's a, but so. the uncertainty is a larger topic. But, but my point is precisely it's because I'm engaged in living that uncertainty is difficult. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's part, of course, what makes life worth living. If right. it's absolutely certain, nothing could happen. But it also means that there is no way in which I can just uh, accept that uncertainty. If I could accept that uncertainty, I would be ready for anything, come what may. You know, and I wouldn't be particularly engaged in something. So, so, so I don't think that, that, uh, that um, uh, part of, to use the word, accepting the necessity of being engaged in life is also accepting that that exposes me to an uncertainty that I cannot master in mm. advance. And, and, I, and, I'm, and, I'm, and I'm worried about them saying like, well, that very thing itself will allow me to master it by saying, I won't try to master it. I don't think that yeah, well, it depends on what you mean by yeah. mastery, but um, you know, it, it, this is another movie reference, and I I didn't actually see this movie, but just had a conversation about it today, which is Only Lovers Left Alive. Is that the right title about the vampires? And so these are people, these are beings, vampires, and they're often seem to me cast in this way, who can go on living from lifetime. They're taking the pill, the pill every day so that they can remain, you know, they, they age slowly, I guess, but they remain alive for a very long time. And as I, as I understand the movie, um, the, the main uh, protagonists, a couple, they're, they're rather bored with it, you know? I mean, they've seen everything, they've done everything, they've been around for centuries, they've engaged all the great thinkers and all the great art, and, and they're kind of like, yeah, okay. You know, because there's no novelty anymore. And novelty is so motivating for all of us. And when it wears thin, well, you know, life doesn't seem so wonderful. But I, I, I don't know why they would assume that there is no novelty since there is novelty constantly. Since I didn't see the movie, I, right. I can't and so, speak to And that. so I'm not, uh, th that argument about getting bored uh, Unless one experiences it, I don't see how it would be the case. There'll be new things constantly just in the last 20 years. In fact, when I think about the only times I think about dying with any kind of uh, negative feeling is when I think, gee, look how far we came in technology the last 20 years. I'm going to miss what's going to happen in 25 years. I won't know what great thing is going to happen next. So. That just to be clear, more interpersonal I, I, I have nothing against the pill. I think it sounds great. I mean, that is to say, like, well, uh, because the, that pill is. I, it, I don't have it, unfortunately. But what I mean is that that pill is a means towards the end of living on, and look, and it has mortality built into it because it's very important that you have the capacity to not take the pill. At, if you come to a certain point where you no longer have that desire. But I don't see, I'm not making an argument against the desire to live on again. And I think we could live for a really long time without it becoming unbearable. That would depend on a lot of factors. 
But living a long time is very, it has nothing to do with being eternal. Because being eternal is not living a long time at all. It's being outside of time. And it's the desirability of that that I'm calling into question. But so, so I think, you know, I, I don't have any principal objections but to all sorts of medical attempts to prolong our lives. Are you but I don't think that... You don't think ideas, uh, especially religious ideas about eternity, have to do with living a long time? Absolutely not. And all religious authorities are extremely clear on this. At least all so-called post-axial religions, which we're calling world, very clear distinctions between analogous to what I'm saying, living on in eternity. That it's not a matter of prolonging this life. It's a matter of like precisely bringing that life to an end, of like resting in peace. This is what Augustine says about being God. But there are yes. religions where they say when you die, you then meet your family. No, that's, that's, not, a promise that, that, that's not a promise that any religion makes, actually. Mormons do that. Uh, I mean, like, in the sense... Like, Mormons make that. It's yeah. very much part of the Mormon I, religion. I, know what you're, I, I see what you mean by that, but I think there, you have to distinguish, first of all, between the most advanced philosophical statement of a religion and the way it's commonly lived and perceived by people. And so, for instance, the other day, the Pope ostensibly said that pets would go to heaven, although then today there was a story saying, in fact, he, that's not what he said. But the idea that, you would go, that your pet would go to heaven or um, what we sometimes hear about Islam, that you would get sex slaves in heaven, um, we think of that with disdain because we uh, think of that as a category mistake, exactly the category mistake that you're talking about, the difference between living on and eternity. But there's also the idea of a last judgment, that you resume your body, that your soul will find its body. In, in Judaism, um, you're not supposed to uh, cremate or, or sever someone's body because it has to be whole for the resurrection. So I think that there's a tension there. It's not, it's not strictly true that religion doesn't teach that. Although if you were to talk to, again, a Maimonides or, an, or an Aquinas or someone like that, they would have a much more sophisticated idea. But I don't think that that's probably what 95% of believers think. And then resuming the body, that's just what the Alcor people are hoping for. Right. And it's a cut price. You know, It's only 80000 for the head. You know, why would you pay 150000 for the body? You'll get a much better body anyway. There's a big difference, though, because it's like the incorruptible body, you know, right. which is not, I mean, it's, it's a very clear distinction. It's not the same. So if what I want... It's my corruptible central body. But there is do. an identity is the key thing. Well, but, but, yeah, but the, the, exactly how that identity should be fought is a very difficult issue. And if you look, like, wh when it comes to this, the idea of this existential consolation, of this type of, like, uh, anyone who takes their religious belief in eternity seriously will run up against that problem. That is to say, uh, because even then, the ones who stress the compatibility of, say, love of God, as we have Christian strands, with the love of your neighbor or your beloved, the means and distinction is very important. You say, like, you don't love your beloved or someone else. You only love them as a means towards the end of loving God. You should not love them as an end in themselves. Because yeah. if you do, you're bound to experience irrevocable loss. Because them as an end in itself will be lost. You, know, you can love them as a means towards the end of God. Uh, so, so I think that that... Uh, but the reason, of course, then why in popular ways, I mean, because what people tend to be invested in is living on rather than eternity. All I'm saying is that that... That's not something that a religious notion of eternity actually promises you. Uh, and, and, and I have nothing against the pathos of like wanting to see your beloved again. I sympathize with that. You know? But I think that's very distinct from a desire to be eternal. Uh, so. Say what you think. No, this is all very erudite. No, all I would say is, uh, just from as a psychologist and an egghead researcher, um, your most uh, quote, uh, average people 
uh, don't really make subtle distinctions. I, I would argue that the essence of uh, humanity is a disinclination to die, and that uh, since minute one, uh, a central dynamic that has motivated just about everything that people do, whether they're aware of it or not, and I would argue on empirical as well as theoretical grounds, being as we're in Freud's house, the um, unconscious death anxiety is what underlies the urge to immortality in the sense that Martin refers to it, not prolongation, yeah. uh, but eternity. And I agree with what everyone has been saying, that this was not a great idea. Uh, moreover, I would argue that uh, one way to think about uh, conditions in modernity is that um, ways of managing uh, death anxiety uh, in the form of different kinds of what Otto Rahn called immortality ideologies that have served us well uh, no longer do so. And we now see uh, the urge for immortality manifested in a variety of uh, distinctly negative ways, uh, you know, including degrading the environment, uh, just a persistent pursuit of money and stuff, uh, you know, protracted ethnic hatred and violence. Not to say uh, that the urge to immortality is the sole explanation of any of those difficulties, but I don't think we can understand uh, any of those without considering uh, the malignant effects of uh, the urge to immortality gone awry. It's interesting to consider the distinction between the fear of the loss of the corporeal being and the loss of the self. And just as a hypothetical, because it's, you know, people write and talk about it, you know, suppose that the mind uploading concept, you know, has some traction. Just imagine people start trying to play that out. And we, could, we could disbelieve it completely. That's fine. It's just a rhetorical device. And then is, is that what, is that going to, satisfy that fear, appease it? What if the same capability to dis disconnect ourself from our physical body goes along with a completely plausible technology to pool the consciousness? What if we gain an ability to not be solitons in our bodies through that technology? That would recast some of these debates in an interesting way. I mean, I, I would almost I, I don't, as a, the humanist in me, of course, has some significant <laughs> abhorrence, but the, you know, the curious, curiosity-driven uh, scientist wants to see what happens, you know? Well, I think that for these anxieties disappear, or they're, the best therapy for them is a belief in the transcendental, that it doesn't have to be personal immortality. If you were to be convinced that, as people speculate now, say that our reality is a simulation and that there's a higher order of reality for which our reality is a simulation. That in and of itself would alleviate a lot of death anxiety because then you would be positing a higher order of reality that our existence serves in some way. And that's only a contemporary you know, 21st century metaphor for the thing that religion has always offered, which is the sense that there's a point to it. Um, and it's, in a sense, it's the pointlessness or the meaninglessness that is really intolerable rather than finitude. Um, because as, as you could say, we're born towards death. We have our being towards death always. It's impossible to imagine a form of life that isn't about death and dying. Um, it's impossible to imagine that. And that's why the idea of freezing your head seems so childish and so sort of stupid is because it's like you're making a mistake. You don't understand what it is you're really afraid of. Um, 
if we could believe that the death has a purpose, that it serves a higher purpose, um, that would take much of the sting out of it. But that's the faith that I think we've lost over the last couple well, hundred years. That is the um, the moral philosophers have weighed in on the simulation hypothesis, and and it, there is a you know completely reasonable philosophical argument for a golden rule and the fact that you would not be a nihilist even if you thought you lived in a simulation. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that always makes me feel a little bit better about living in a simulation. So. Right. No, I, I agree with you completely on all of that, mm -hmm. and that. Um, the really the the deeper anxiety that's called death anxiety is about meaninglessness, and also I mean in talking about how I I, mean, I think it's it's wrong to generalize also about people in their attitudes towards their own death or dying, and certainly um, because I deal I supervise a number of psychologists and have recently supervised a case where there was a suicide, and of a young person. And, um, and it was a, one of these situations where everything seemed ideal, and it was really uh, difficult to imagine, and it seemed ultimately that maybe there was an, you know, really an insult to this woman's ideals, and that that was the reason why she killed herself. And so, uh, you know, people can kill themselves over some, what looks like from another person's point of view is a pretty trivial offense. Now, of course, there can be other things, like the Robin Williams suicide, where there maybe are multiple factors and things that anyone could fairly well identify with. But um, you know, the, the issue of some sort of transcendental meaning or something that gives meaning that would go beyond death seems to be a very important issue that perhaps you know, needs to be looked at from the more pragmatic point of view, again, of um, the uh, situation that we're in as a society, having so many people who are going to be going through the dying and death process, and the tremendous overload that can make on our system if everyone is terrified and wants to live that extra one week or a month or whatever, uh, simply because they have no means of uh, seeing death as uh, an interesting adventure, as a developmental point, as a, uh, a process that is meaningful in itself. And it seems like we have tended as a culture to, and again, I don't want to overdo this because when I'm saying we here, I'm talking about educated, fairly elite people have tended to you know, see death as kind of the end, like not very interesting, you know, not really the next adventure, just the, the, the finishing point. Um, I, mean, I think there's still plenty of people in our culture who don't see it that way, but, but as a, a certain kind of, um, uh, you know, living in a certain sort of more educated intellectual environment, one can uh, see that there's been this turn towards the meaninglessness of death rather than it being meaningful. Or, or people, who, people who want to do it on their own terms. Over 20,000 people signed up with Mars One for a one-way yeah. trip to Mars, mostly young people, right. equally male, female. And that's right. a perfect example of, yeah. of, of yeah. everyone very would meaningful. be willing to die if there was a Her, meaning. meaning. Yeah, yeah. That, that was meaning. Both pragmatically and philosophically, though, I, I want to question the idea that we should try to overcome the anxiety of death. I mean, I, uh, attenuate in various ways, sure, but I think that it's, it's uh, 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 
because I mean, if you take that idea seriously, that, that one would see death as not as the end of a person's life, but as an interesting adventure, the next step. I mean, it seems to me like uh, the most irresponsible uh, view possible. That is to say, like, I mean, part of the reason why I have responsibility for someone else's life or for my own life is that it can irrevocably end. That but. it really is destructible. Uh, and I think, that, and, and that should, and if, and if there was no level of anxiety before that, there would also be no level of care for that life. So I don't think that, that this is, again, I, this, I, I don't think that we should. really overstating it. I mean, I'm a psychoanalyst. There's anxiety in everything. I mean, you can't escape anxiety. There's no ending of anxiety. There's just that's, a working with it in a different That's what I'm saying. But, but the, yeah. that, that's exactly what I'm yeah. saying. But, but the, the idea that that's a shortcoming, that we can't overcome it, that mm -hmm. I think is a mistake. I mean, I think we should recognize that anxiety is both both productive and debilitating, but it's not something that one should even in principle try to eradicate. The truth of the matter is that you cannot live without anxiety exactly. because all anxiety is, is a signal to you that there is danger. Yes, and and without it you cannot, dangerous. well without it you can't survive. Right. Now there is however this issue of anxiety about dying and I wanted to see if your, your feeling is the same that that anxiety in terms of the ideas that attach to them varies throughout life. That for a 20-year-old, 20 uh, the anxiety about dying is attached to different ideas and different fantasies than it is to a 40-year-old or a 60-year-old or an 80-year-old. Uh, let's say a 40-year-old, the anxiety may be very much connected to leaving his children, what will happen to his children, what will happen to his wife. To a 20-year-old, it may be that he didn't have enough fun and didn't go enough dancing. So it, the, the, the anxiety is fundamental. It's part of, I think, being human, when I, probably also in the animal, certainly also in the animal kingdom. The anxiety is fundamental. The ideas attaching to it vary. And I think what you are talking about is that it is possible at some point in life based on disease or mental deterioration or whatever to contemplate that I can somehow surmount this anxiety and end the life. Sorry? Surmount. Well, the anxiety at the end of life. Right, but through a cognitive effort. Mm -hmm. You can't silence the anxiety, you can't be extinguished, but it can be cognitively softened or modified or... Well, well what Adam was saying about meaning is really what I was saying. So anxiety is present, uncertainty is present in all aspects of living and dying, but what does the activity mean? Why are we investing ourselves into something like becoming a parent, for example? You know, you know that you're going to be poor. You know that you're going to be worn out by it. You know that in the long <laughs> run, the, your friends who don't have children are actually doing better than the ones that do. I mean, there are many reasons why you you know you could say to yourself, that's not a very good thing to invest in. But you're, there's some larger meaning that is. Uh, active in your investment, and it is coming uh, sort of it be it mixes with or integrates into the anxiety. The anxiety then 
uh, really is, you know, as, as Freud said, it's, it's not, anxiety is different from fear in the sense that it's the, it's the sense of, of being threatened by something that is not truly a danger, it's not a clear and present danger, whereas fear is the response to something that is a clear and present danger. So well, that sense of being threatened is, um, I, you know. I think that whole issue of the distinction between anxiety and fear is a big uh, both neuroscientific and psychoanalytic problem that it has is. not been resolved. Yeah. But, but, but it's just it, the meaning that's connected with that engagement. You know, and so if you're going to engage with death in a meaningful way, you're, yes, you'll be anxious and so on, but you'll be heading into it with, uh, with more the sense, you might say, even of enthusiasm you know, than if it seems like a, a meaningless and stupid end to your existence after which there is nothing uh, or, you know, after which there is just the loss of everything and whatever else. So the way that you uh, imagine it, I guess, you know, the way you understand it within whatever your collective framework is for, for the meaning of death, I think is very significant. But, but I think you know? part of the problem, though, in, in that, in terms of meaning, is that it's very hard to um, not carry it into death, the feelings and ideas that we have while living. So we have the fantasy that when we die, even though we don't say it that way, but emotionally it's almost as if, well, I'll miss my children. Well, you're not going to miss anything. There's, there's nothing to miss, there's nothing to recognize, there's nothing to realize. It's, it's over. But it's very hard to, to think of it that way. Spontaneously, we always think of somehow we are going to feel some pain because of something. Yeah. So, so what, I, what I'm taking from this is that the desire, the natural, the fear of death mapping into a desire for life extension or longevity, extreme or otherwise, absent a, a known strategy for coping with the anxiety and fear themselves is completely irrational, right? Mm -hmm. It, you, you, you shouldn't have those two things going together. Oh, say that again. If it, you, to, the, the natural desire for a life extension or increased longevity, if it's not coupled with an, an aware strategy for mitigating or dealing with the fear and anxiety that is just going to be present even more as yeah. you live longer, makes, yes. it would yes. makes it an irrational yes, viewpoint. Exactly. Yeah. But, right. but, but the meaning question, though, doesn't have to be something that I believe is itself immune from destruction. You know, so, so like the fact that I have children and thereby I invest in something that goes beyond my own death and that might give my life greater purpose. Uh, that meaning doesn't depend on, I think, that my children in turn will live forever, etc. The, 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 the greater project that Adam was mentioning, I mean, I, I, I do think that our lives need to be tapped into a greater project, but, but that project itself does not have to be conceived as itself indestructible as opposed to my destructible finite existence. The, the idea that like, meaning requires, on some level, indestructibility, I think that's, a, that's, that's a, an inference that, that we don't have to uh, accept. Uh, but, uh, but that also means, if you don't do that, then it also means that if it will be destroyed and you investigate it continuing, then you will have some level of anxiety and fear of death, which is not irrational. Uh, that would be rational in that case. If, 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 if I want something to persist, and that can, doesn't have to be my, it can be the political product I'm invested in, the community, etc. that doesn't have to do with that I will persist, but 
I still have a rational fear of the possibility that it will not persist. Uh, and, and that's not something I think you can. Uh, and, and the idea that we should try to overcome that sort of fear, I mean, has, that's, that's, has always been starting with the Socrates Phaedo, that, that, that Plato's Phaedo, that the idea that the proper philosophical idea related to death would be equanimity. The wise man thinks least of all about death, says Spinoza. You know? And whether you're an Epicurean materialist or a Platonist metaphysician, in relation to death, you still think your task is to overcome the fear of death, uh, somehow proving that it's irrational to fear death. Whereas I actually think that there are certainly irrational forms of fear of death, but I think there's a rational kernel to the fear of death, which proceeds from the desire to live, uh, uh, or the desire for something to live on. Uh, and and, and that's, that is irreducible and incurable. Uh, and we can develop various ways of coping and negotiating and attenuating that. Well, but the I don't desire think that to live essentially means that from the time you are born and you keep moving in life, your investment is in life. Your investment is not in death. Yeah, and that's not, that's not irrational. So what about another hypothetical pill? The, the, the hypothetical pill that by some clever psychochemistry removes the fear and the anxiety. How does that change the individual and the and the culture? Even more interestingly, well, then we're a garden of vegetables. Yeah, yeah, completely. Just, Although, just taking those don't two don't hunt, don't tens of millions of people try to take pills like that all the time? Yeah. I mean, there are pills like that well, that are supposed to relieve anxiety and depression. Well, they're supposed to. Yeah, but they, in the long run, they haven't worked that well. Um, you know, the the thing that I guess I keep coming back to is that I have you know. Uh, Really, I, I've been engaged with many people who have wanted to commit suicide, both in, in my own direct practice, but then recently through supervision. And in two cases, and I don't want to say much about them, but these were very successful people. At the peak of their lives, both women, one of them with young children and the other one without, public figures, well-known, um, attractive you know, educated professionals and so on. And um, so is that a completely irrational? You're saying that that goes against the nature of life to well, want to commit no. suicide? I'm saying no, it's part of finite life that it can become unbearable. And I'm, say, uh, I'm just saying insofar as you want something, insofar as you have a product that you want to sustain, you also want to live on. But it's possible for that to be short-seared. It's possible for it to become unbearable. That's part of the radical vulnerability of being finite, that you, it's possible that you won't be able to take it. And there, that's not necessarily irrational either. Uh, but, that, but it's symptomatic, right, that, that that's the same as the end of any project then, the end of any commitment. Uh, Except the commitment to end the possibility of any commitment, you know. So. Well, I mean, I think the I think the motivations are usually complex, very complex, and sure, I think you know. And, and, and so, yeah. I, I mean, took just, it you to mean that yeah. someone who actually wanted to die—that was a hypothetical. They example. want to die, so. and they go about making it yeah. very clear that that they found a way to do that, yeah. and they do it in a way that is. Um, you know uh, that that works well, yeah. and so I think you know there are there are people who uh, are, are more afraid of life than of, of death, and uh, that they they seek that because the meaning of life seems to be unbearable or at least terribly disappointing, yeah. and so they they seek instead to die. Of course, and, and there's uh, no maybe there's no real good argument against suicide. That I mean. 
Camus said, the problem of the modern age is why we don't commit suicide. Right. Um, there's, and the implication of that is that there is no reason not to commit suicide. Right. Um, because if you, it, precisely because when you die, you don't feel anything. So once you're gone, um, there is no you anymore. So there's no you to feel good or bad about your decision. It's a completely incommensurable idea. It intervenes into our life. Death sort of comes in at an angle. It's not necessarily part of life. It's a termination. Um, so the, the only conceivable good reason would be to avoid causing other people pain. Mm -hmm. um, if you accept the, yes. the, the sort of modernist perspective right, exactly. in that regard. That yeah. If you have people who would be very hurt by your death physically, economically, or emotionally, um, then you could say for their sake you wouldn't commit suicide. But it's very hard to come up with a good argument against suicide as it relates to me, as a, the person committing suicide. So if, you, if, you're, if you, the starting point is, is someone, is this completely abstract person who's not defined by his engagements right. in the world, who's not, uh, uh, that is primarily caught up in caring. Uh, and if, because if you are, I mean, what you fear with death is not the state of being dead, which is nothing. What you fear is the loss of what you want to keep. Right, unless you don't want to keep it. And then, yeah, so, so of course. Because there are moments when that's, yes. the, that's Heidegger anxiety, right? The angst is when everything recedes, the, the world recedes, when it's no longer your world. It becomes uh, no longer attached to you, and you're no longer but attached to But for Heidegger, though, you still care about not caring. You're still invested in the You still care about not caring. So you, you're not at that point where, like, it's, where it would look rational to kill yourself. It's, mm. what's, what's, your, what's exciting is that you want to care, and there's nothing which you care can attach to. Right. Sheldon, what's your experience with that? I have not, but I, I like Camus, and he said in his notebooks, come to terms with death thereafter, anything is possible. So, you know, on the one hand, there's the view that Adam raises about suicide, and I agree with, but on the other hand, you know, I think Camus and his more um, uplifting, optimistic moments had some, um, uh, I think, um, some hopes, let's say, for humanity, and I think it's along the lines of what Martin is saying about harnessing death anxiety and putting it to good use, um, which is, I think, what the Epicureans are saying, sort of. Uh, this is another discussion. Yeah, maybe. All right, we'll yeah. talk about that another time. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> Martha Nussbaum, a philosopher, has a... Yeah, but she criticized the Epicureans. I, yes, I agree. So, 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 all right, but I like yeah. her take on yeah. that. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah. So, I mean, I appreciate the Camus perspective, but I also think occasionally the philosopher can get can forget they're an animal you know there's a part where you're the ego and the yeah. the brain just take over and and we are animals you know it's just just get a little more visceral back to biology the nature of life to persist to endure from you know quorum sensing bacteria to the higher creatures of the planet so that's the there's a grounding somewhere there yeah. although then the question would be if you're depressed then you're a sick animal right um, and why should you not end your sickness? Why, why do we have such an investment in other people not killing themselves? But I thought you were also saying that it, it doesn't have to connote depression. That perspective. Well, I think no. I think I mean I would say that that is the metaphysical face of what is experientially depression. It's mm. it's the same thing viewed in two different points of view. That if the world no longer has any value or meaning, and your commitments to the world fall away you're no longer invested in your own projects. Um, the, because what it comes down to, again, is that there's no third party, there's no God guaranteeing your projects. The projects have meaning for you if they have meaning for you. And if they don't have meaning for you, then they have nothing, no meaning at all to anyone. So then there's no 
objective reason why you can't kill yourself or why you oughtn't to kill yourself. There's only, a, there's only other people's subjective desire that you not do it. So I, I just want to introduce one, one other perspective. I've, I've wondered whether this was just too esoteric, but um, so from a Buddhist perspective, and especially from the Vajrayana, the later Vajrayana developments of Tibetan Buddhism, <clears throat> and the kinds of things that people recognize, the Dalai Lama and the Karmapa, those folks do. Um, there's a tremendous opportunity in the moment of death, and that is the opportunity for enlightenment. And um, it, it, there's, there are a lot of practices, and I've done some of them, for conscious dying in the Tibetan uh, practices among those uh, that have to do with... Uh, the state of mind at the, at the moment of death. And there's a lot of preparation for that moment and a lot of support that um, would, uh, I've just recently gone through a very personal death with someone who was supported all the way through who was um, in the late stages of Alzheimer's with no cortex left at all, had been unconscious, was very conscious in dying with the eyes open and light actually coming out of the eyes. And um, so the Tibetan practices are specifically focused, and there are some practices in Zen as well, on the opportunity of dying. And not just the opportunity from the point of view of any kind of immortality, but rather for the development of what would be considered the mind stream that has been in the form of this particular lifetime that goes forward. And so in these cases, death is really looked upon with um, a lot of interest and excitement. And of course, there are many um, accounts of these kinds of um, uh, experiences uh, that are uh, more or less well-known, but these days they're out there. Uh, and uh, it's just a very different involvement with death, and it's a very different kind of development than what the Western perspective would typically take. Uh, and I just put it out so, there. So does that perspective as a death as an opportunity, does that depend on the scaffolding of reincarnation and other yes, parts of the belief it, system? It, okay. it depends on, it's really hard, again, this gets into particularities about Buddhist philosophy, but it isn't reincarnation per se, mm -hmm. it's really called rebirth, and so uh, in Buddhist philosophy, the continuity from lifetime to lifetime is the same as the continuity within a lifetime. Like you're not the same person that you were when you were three, when you were 14, you know. As you move along, your identity, your physical makeup, and your concerns and perspectives all change. And so as you move over that transition from dying to the next stage, which is a sort of dreamlike stage, uh, you carry some identity, but as you move through that process and then move into existence again, there may be very little trace of or memory of in the same way that you don't remember everything that happened to you yesterday. You can remember some of it. Uh, you certainly uh, wouldn't be remembering much from an earlier lifetime. And 
Of course, the Tibetans especially have ways of testing for that and so on when they're identifying a Karmapa or a, a, a Dalai Lama or whatever. So, but it's just a very, very different framework on death. And so it, it doesn't... I mean, you, before you talked about accepting death, which presumably means that, like, I mean, if there is death, that is the termination of. Sorry? If there is death, there, that is the termination of a life. If it, there is, yes. so, it's a uh, termination of a particular subjectivity. Yeah, and yeah. So, so, so if you then introduce a metaphysics where that's not really the end of what matters, you're no longer talking about death. All you're denying, all you're saying is that you're denying that there is no. death in the relevant sense. That no, is to say, no, that's that's really kind of a mistake to say it that way because it mm. makes it seem too distinct. Like there, there is no death. There is actually a profound change when somebody moves out of a physical existence. And um, it's no small movement. But, uh, but, it, but it's not the end of that development of that consciousness. That's the thought, anyway. So, yeah, so then you have a strict separation between the consciousness and the body. You have a classical consciousness-body dualism. And in that framework, what really matters doesn't die. So. If, if, so, so to present that as a way of like facing mortality seems to me very misleading because if I'm going to face mortality, I'm facing the fact that like I am such a being that I can be completely annihilated. I am such a being that like I depend on a body that I don't own and that if it ceases to be, I will also cease to be. If there's any meaningful Thought, if, if, if that's not the thought I'm facing, I'm not facing the thought but of death. Would, I've just come up with the metaphysics where there is no death. I would completely agree with you. But you Everything just said that you something said. continues. What continues about no, me... But, you know, you're, but you're, you're posing the whole argument on a point of view that's not valid to the system. And so you can't say no, that, it undoes, that it undoes death itself. It does not. So it it sounds not. like just to find death as no. complete annihilation. But what's the material? Is there a material substrate for what survives, or is it purely spiritual? It's purely spiritual. And see, that's what we don't believe anymore. Yeah, that's mm -hmm. what we can't believe right. anymore. Is that well, there's no yeah. such thing as the purely it's, spiritual? So it's, it is. It is meant to be uh, consciousness that right. survives. I'd also yeah. like to throw a, a question to the, the group that I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't also consider the vicissitudes of the development of death fears and specifically the, the enduring influence from childhood when the first appearance of these kinds of concerns that are often rooted in object relations that, uh, that, and the role of aggression in that, that you know, going back to the, you know, the, the, the bodily, bodily substrate of, of, um, of experience that um, when children begin to become aware of the uh, possible consequences of their aggression towards loved ones and the fears of having murderous wishes towards others, I think that it's useful to think about that in connection to fears of death and wishes for immortality as kind of reparations and undoing of some of these uh, feelings. So I, I wonder if anyone wishes to comment on that. I agree. I mean, I think that there's a great deal that arises from that early sort of instinctual experience of being destructive. And that then that fears arise from that also in relation to um, the continuity of oneself and others. And that those are carried over then into one's view of death 
most people, when I work with them in analysis or therapy, and I ask them, what do you think happens when you die? Most people say you go into the dark, or you go into the dark alone, uh, or it's over, but when I say, so what's that like, that it's over? It's usually something like the end of a movie, or things are just dark. Um, it's an interesting thing. That's yeah. sort of the imagination of it. End of a movie, that is depressing. Popcorn stick into your <laughs> shoes. <laughs> it's just like where it goes, the end, and then there's nothing. <laughs> okay, I think we can go to the audience for questions, but I just I, I, wanted I, to comment something. The last time you were here, you told us that we could get on some kind of uh, rocket or ship and go into another universe and oh. start life there and well, have a whole new way of experiencing time and space and so life. So the physics, uh, it's not the escape clause. It's immortalizing, if not immortality. It, it, it is completely plausible. We, the trick is you have to find a thousand solar mass or a larger black hole, which is bigger than just a dead star, so we'd have to go a ways to find it. And the, and the point being that that's a big enough black hole that tidal forces don't destroy the body on your way into the event horizon. And then you gather your friends and your loved ones in another spaceship, and you, your time asymptotically slows down, and you're, you know, obviously you comb your hair and do a very casual royal family type wave you know, <laughs> on your way in, because that's the frame you're going to be left with. They'll be left with. They go off, die, etc. So that's the... Uh, and that, that's the perspective of everyone else. You have truly been immortalized. You, in your time frame, do travel through the event horizon to an unknown fate, but Kip Thorne, who was the consultant yes, on that absolutely. movie, you know, he, in the top tier of gravity theorists, points out that spinning black holes of that size do have time-like curves where, in principle, you can you know, cheat time by moving backwards and forwards, meeting previous and future versions of yourself in theory, in the best theory we have of black holes. So that's the, the nearest black hole of that size is going to be something like 500 light years away. So we have some technology. So we have some time. We have to some technology <laughs> to work on there. So questions, uh, line up and um, state your name. And please keep it in the form of a, of a brief question. Uh, yeah, uh, for people, for myself and people I know, there isn't so much a fear of dying, it's the process of dying, the pain and suffering of dying. And I never understood the fear of dying because if you're religious, you're looking for something better for afterwards. And if you're not religious, it's all over. So where does the fear and anxiety come in? <laughs> well, I mean, I tried to answer my question by saying that what you fear in fearing death is not the state of being dead, which is nothing, but you fear to lose what you want to keep. That is to say, you have fear insofar as you conceive of death as the extinction of the possibility of experience, and you have an investment in going on, in continuing to have the possibility of experience. Well, that's regret, not fear, isn't it? I mean, no, I, no I, I, I think, I mean, whatever you want to... Well, it's a big difference between regret and fear. No, I don't think it's a... It, it's not a regret because it's not past-oriented. It it's the prospect of, of a future in which you will not be. Yeah, and so I think I mean regret is past oriented, and fear is future oriented. So I think I think that's adequately called a fear uh, that that I that I uh, apprehend the possibility of my not being, and precisely because I have an investment in continuing to be, that scares me, uh, and, and it, it doesn't seem like that's a category mistake or irrational uh, to me. I, I think there's a very coherent logic to that. Mm. 
it seems to me that it's like what Rob said, that, it's, that a lot of the fears are based on experiences from childhood that we've already had and that we reorganize them around dying. And so we're afraid that we're going into the dark alone or we're afraid we're going to fall forever or that something's going to be destroyed, that we've already had those deep fears and they become reorganized around dying. Even if you're religious, you have those fears? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, because you, so you, don't, believe dying is a, you don't believe your religion then. Well, dying is a physical, a very physical activity. And as people go into dying, yeah, there are a lot of physical things that happen. Yeah, I can understand yeah. that's what I said. Like the and so, but then, you know, they anticipate those things and they see their loved ones going through. And I think a lot of the imagination does connect to childhood experiences and fantasies. Thank you. Joan Aronian, very happily retired surgeon. Um, I told Edward that I thought he should begin this program with a couple of minutes of Carl Reiner and Mel Brooks with the 2,000-year-old man, because that might be as close to immortality as we could come. Um, I like Martin's comments about temporary permanence, and very briefly, two examples for me of temporary permanence. One, being a surgeon, any, any physician in a teaching institution would have this experience, that your life doesn't change. The youth comes, is with you, and goes year after year after year. There's a permanence to our existence until we get home and look in the mirror. <laughs> Secondly, my wife has just written a book for her children and grandchildren, about her father trying to establish some permanence in the minds of the future generations of Mehdi Dumagani. And I think that this is one way that already one generation has seen and knows this man when they had never seen him or known him and she is establishing some temporary permanence, hopefully for another generation or two. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, so since we're talking about film and comedy. Wait, wait, uh, he, has to, he wants to uh, comment. Oh, sorry. No, I just wanted to, to, to follow up on your thoughts on, on, on temporary permanence, that I think that another way of, of, of fleshing out that thought, and, and what you said was very evocative, is the fact that uh, what makes it both difficult but also meaningful to be alive is that we have is, is that you have both permanence and impermanence right they're, 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 they're interdependent if you only had absolute impermanence there wouldn't be any problem because you wouldn't experience loss of anything you would just everything would immediately disappear yeah or, or and if you had absolute permanence likewise there would just nothing would be at issue because everything would just be what it is so uh, the key to thinking about mortality in a general sense, I think, is to think about the co-implication of permanence and impermanence, that like, things last while also disappearing. Things last while also being possible to cease to be. And that's where both the passion and the agony of being alive arises from that intersection of, of permanence and impermanence. And I mean, I'm sure as a surgeon, you've had particularly vivid experiences of this. But I think that that's, that is the structure. And that's also why attempts to escape mortality can either be then like, oh, let's just have absolute impermanence. Everything disappears and I don't care. That's fine. Then, of course, nothing hurts me. Or I imagine that there's something absolutely permanent that I don't have to worry about. But I think both of those paths are, 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 are flights from 
what we are and how things matter to us. And, and we should not and we should not indulge those those flights. So, so as and, and I I'd like also comment because I, I also was provoked by the the notion. Um, and so the perspective from physics or astronomy, if you like, is is that of pattern. Uh, we're just patterns, really. That's all there is. I mean, all all of these atoms in this room and elsewhere in the whole universe were once smaller than an atom in the Big Bang, and the space-time paths went through these bizarre. Uh, roots through stars to become heavier elements without which we wouldn't be here and they congeal or cohere and not even you know your skin is lasts a week your internal organ cells maybe last much of your life so we're just so our consciousness ourself the entire thing it's just an, an evanescent pattern and the patterns continue they have you know the atoms may decay in 10 to the 35 years we don't know but that's pretty good that's as close to eternity as I'd care to conceive of so the permanent impermanence of patterns when we eventually get to understand the brain and consciousness better, maybe and maybe that opens the door also to some of these Eastern ways of thinking, just from the realm of straight up physics. Well, Roger Penrose thought mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. Okay, <clears throat> I was just going to uh, mention that this topic and discussion might well be summed up in a light vein um, by Woody Allen's response to the question on this topic of immortality, um, which when asked, don't you want to carry on forever? He said, no, I just want to carry on in my apartment. <laughs> uh, so, um, okay, so uh, the questions that arose for me during the, the, the panel, which was very, very good, in my opinion, uh, were answered within the panel. So I'm just going to make a few quick observations. Any uh, comments that the panel would care to make are welcome, but otherwise I'll just offer them as observations. Um, on the, on the point of our biological heritage, um, it wasn't mentioned that our, our uh, prefrontal cortex, and particularly structures within that prefrontal cortex, those structures are unique to human beings. And uh, the way I can best describe it is Rollo May's comment in Love and Will that uh, depression is the inability to construct a future. So the need for us to look forward to the future also generates, because we are aware of our own mortality, that anxiety. And I just thought that was something that wasn't addressed directly, and I thought it would be relevant. Uh, in terms of uh, the Far East, um, I think the perspective you were describing might be summed up uh, in a Hindi saying, which translates as, in the world, but not of it. In, in other words, there's being merged with the sensorium and our reactions to it. And then there's another perspective where we step back and look inward. And I think that um, that perspective has, makes all the difference between one how's, how one's experienced, not just oneself, but one's uh, impending demise. Uh, so that's another comment. In terms of mathematics being invented, uh, there's a raging debate whether it's invented or discovered. And I think one, support for the, one piece of support for the latter is the robustness, let's say, of Einsteinian relativity. Uh, where, because he was so convinced that his predictions would be correct, and they have been to a remarkable degree, that he said if, the, uh, if when we're able to actually measure the perturbation of uh, Mercury's orbit around the sun, if it doesn't agree with my theory, the, the measurement will be wrong. <laughs> right? So um, mathematics does seem to, yes, it is language, and therefore it's inherently metaphorical. At the same time, um, if you speak with Professor... Uh, uh, Nima at Princeton, uh, he's of the opinion that right now we're just getting into a, a, approaching a, a, an era where we have an actual one-to-one -one relationship between mathematical theory and structure. 
So it may not be the case that it's completely metaphorical and just of our own invention. Uh, I think that might be it. Um, yeah. Um, oh, yes. The other thing about the Far East, um, and again, this, uh, this nature of uh, permanence and non-permanence, it is, it is the case that while uh, that perspective was encouraged within Buddhism, um, it, at the same time, we cannot deny that the shogunates and the dynasties in Japan and China, respectively, were definitely into permanence. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So again, it's a yeah. matter of perspective versus the social political yeah. context. Mm-hmm. Any Thank comments you. are welcome. I, I wanted just to make a comment about the business about mathematics discovered or invented. And I think, again, that may not be a really fruitful way to draw a distinction because, you know, it's, it's kind of the, the, if you think from the point of view of, of Winnicott or of Piaget, does the child invent the world or discover the world? Mm-hmm. You know, on one hand, it seems to be inventing the world and its perceptions, and on the other hand, it's discovering the world. And so there's something about drawing the distinction between the discovering and the inventing that might be misleading. And there's a lot that's written about that in psychoanalysis, Just actually. a quick response to that, and I'll, I'll, I'll relinquish my time, <laughs> which is that um, a saying like, a watched kettle never boils, mm-hmm. right? Um, in natural language, that describes the fact that people are not necessarily aware of that when we pay attention to a phenomenon, our perception of the passage of time changes, right. which also speaks to the issue of boredom in a, large, a greatly extended life, where it's, for me, completely feasible to imagine a point in science and technology where we're able to control that sense of the perception of time uh, at will. Uh, so the difference is that with the state, that statement does not hold up to what we know and what we can accomplish using mathematics uh, to actually measure the passage of time while that kettle boils. Mm-hmm. So there is a fundamental difference between the intuitive humanistic uh, discovery of the world mm-hmm. and a, a language that is precise and independent of the individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, that reflects a particular mm-hmm. structure in the world. And so I'd mm-hmm. response to that. I'll, I'll make one comment on the math issue. Um, I, I mean, I think you can, it's not a dichotomy. You can have your cake and eat it. I mean, we're in the culture at the moment. Turing is being celebrated. And, and his, you know, to me, his singular achievement was the Turing machine. And that, which I think is what they should have been sending out with the SETI message rather than these little stick men and silly pictograms, they should have just sent a Turing machine because it's, uh, it's the algorithm of all algorithms, the algorithm that can do anything. So it's the purity of a computational framing that can calculate anything that you can imagine. And you tell that to the aliens that we're smart. That's that. <laughs> or at least that we're on the first rung anyway. Calculate this. Okay. Thank you so much for your courage to speak about this very challenging subject. But just getting back to a second to, you know, Plato Dude, by, actually was an Olympic champion wrestler, Plato was his nickname, which means broad-shouldered man, that's not his name. Anyway, one of the main ideas simply was the acorn theory. It genetically encoded into an acorn is everything it needs to grow into a tall majestic oak tree. doesn't get lost on the way, it knows exactly what to do, that when we're born into this world, we have a presence, a soul, a spirit, but this 
exterior womb space for consciousness to develop over 21 years at the Lion King versus the Cub. I'm just curious if I just toss this out. Do you think genetically encoded in that equal theory for a human being are things that we are just beginning to know that might actually still be in there? I'm just tossing that out. Whatever you think. <laughs> Yeah, I'm not sure I understand the question. Oh. But well, how could there be something concealed that we wouldn't understand? What would that be? What form would because that be? You, full consciousness in a human being does not biologically develop to your 21 or 22. Mm -hmm. So you couldn't access your full potentiality until you were 21 or 22. By that time, most education is finished and done. We're in the world of reality. Our brains are just waking up. Mm -hmm. And so if there was anything genetically encoded, we would just be able to access it at that moment and practically nothing is ever said about it. This is a very erudite audience, so I'm just tossing that out because I don't curious. think they, they can answer that question, but thanks for the comment. One more. Well, these days they think it's 25, not 21. Yeah, for that to be mature. 85, you mean. 25 for the brain to mature its potentiality for. So, what do you guys think? <laughs> Uh, I'm not going to let no, just said that, but it's like, this is like a brand new thing about their speaking that point. But saying, you know, just getting to that point through science and understanding and neurobiology and all yeah. that. So you haven't even begun to right. access right. what might be a simple point of nature. Right. The guy, you know, uh, Gregory Bateson, after all, this mm -hmm. psychology of nature, four words. People think nature works. Mm -hmm. Billions of words are for mm -hmm. that if we're just getting to this essence and we don't even know what's there, do you think nature is, might be intelligent enough to know that we might, like dreams or vision, that something might come up like a collective unconscious? Mm -hmm. I'm just curious if you think that there might be any possibilities beyond thinking. I think, I think I'd say yes if I understand the question, and I think it would be impossible not to be. Okay. What do you guys think about the connection of immortality and singularity? I mean, you know, we're here okay. for a while, 2035, you know, we're going to reach that. And, and, and it talks about patterns, right? So body parts are replaceable, and computers can record every utterance or record everything that we do, and therefore create continuity, and therefore reaching immortality. Any thoughts on that? Well, Ray's time scale is dictated by his own projected demise, and he's, he's, gross, he's grossly optimistic, obviously, because strong AI has you know, failed in its main agenda. The, the Moore's Law, the thing that makes our cyber lives easier, is not being replicated in the cohesion of creating a, you know, a sort of self-organizing framework that replicates in any part the subtlety and Forget about reflective thought. I mean, we're talking about so someone like an inventor, like um, guy at Carnegie Mellon. I'm just zoning out on his name. I mean, he considers that full amalgam of robotic sensors and uh, a neural net operating in an environment, a sort of roboticized neural creature, is something of like Guppy, um, you know, in its capabilities, not and not sentient. And, and that, that's probably about fair. So, and that's, that is so many orders of magnitude away from where you need to be, even in just a mechanistic way of thinking about it, that 
so that projection is wrong. As, is it off the table entirely and impossible? Some people think that, that you, you have to hold judgment on. But if you want to be, take a different view of that, you could say that in the 100 simple 100 years of, of computation uh, and computer science, we have traveled a road in mimicking biological capability that took evolution three billion years. That's pretty good acceleration, you know. So the, the, the futurists, the post-humanists, the singularity people are sort of hanging their hats on, on that a little bit. I just want to say one thing about that. So for the sake of argument, even if I were to bracket all the theoretical and practical difficulties of carrying these things out, and, uh, you know, and I could speak at length about the theoretical and practical, but say, say just for sake of argument that it was possible, it would still not be, in my view, uh, immortality. In, in, you know, as, long as, as long as there's this dependence on the material support, uh, as long as it's not entirely spiritual, to compare with Adam was asking you, there's still uh, the possibility of malfunction that things can, uh, and, and, and that possibility of malfunction and that destructibility is not just, that's part of why that existence would still matter to me. Uh, it, even if it was possible. So, so I don't think that, that, that those are various, there might be other problems with those types of uh, projects and thought experience, but I don't think it's a problem of immortality, as long as one recognizes that there is uh, a material support that, that enables that sort of existence. Because as long as there's that, it's still, it's not corporeal in the sense of an organic body, but it is material in the sense of something that can be destroyed. Uh, and uh, so, so as long as those things don't spin off into a fantasy that we could be entirely spiritual beings, uh, uh, Again, I don't think whatever problems there would be, would, it wouldn't be those sort of philosophical. And, and the moral of this is should not have used GE parts. <laughs> <laughs> One quick follow-up. So would that help us with our accepting our debts? I mean, if we came close to it, if we knew that we would continue on, if it's not just a movie, it's something very close to us, would we then accept death in a better way? Well, I mean, it depends on what, I find this idea of accepting that very obscure, and I find that people mean very different things with it. Uh, in my view, usually they mean denying death at the end of the day when they're talking about accepting death. Uh, so it would all depend on what you mean by, by the acceptance of death. Uh, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter if I exist or if I don't exist. Right, right, yeah. Well, that seems like a horrible, uh, yeah, that, 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 think, that seems like death I think itself. our next the next person who's going to ask questions can clarify some of these points. Uh, I'm going to talk from a clinical perspective. <clears throat> I have the privilege of uh, working with some people who are dying. And what's interesting is our discussion is all about how we feel about death from the point of view of being healthy and somewhat young. When you're in a position where you're dying, you have a very different perspective. <clears throat> as Sheldon can probably tell you, people who are dying are not as afraid of death uh, as you would imagine. In fact, there, uh, some people, uh, as they get sicker, uh, look forward to dying. There's a, there's a wish for death. In fact, some, we have a, a group of patients that we call, uh, uh, they have a wish for hastened death. And, and some of those, as you know, sign up for programs uh, to die, uh, you know, by their own hand, uh, in their own way. So um, I think that as your life begins to diminish, and the burdens of living uh, become greater, uh, and you have less to look forward to. You you look forward to death as a, a kind of a release or a freedom. And again, uh, if you talk to patients, they don't so much uh, think uh, about 
the fact that they're they're not going to exist, but they, uh, they they have all kinds of defense mechanisms in which uh, there is some sense that they will go on in some form or other. Um, some of them feel that their their body will die, but their their spirit will continue. Uh, as, as, as some have said, as we as we get closer to death, or those are those of us who are in the foxholes, I'll become quite religious. Uh, people do uh, become more religious as they get close to death. Uh, they um, many people believe that they are, as uh, Ed said, going to reunite with their family. Um, so there are all kinds of fantasies that play into making the process of dying much less frightening to somebody who's facing death. So um, perhaps the discussion uh, should be about learning something more from people who have actually got close to death or are dying uh, uh, for those of us who are still living or afraid of dying. They're, they're less, they can teach us a great deal to make us less afraid. Right. It just seems to me that you're describing two very different things. I mean, one is the, is the example of someone because of the physical or psychological suffering at a late stage in life, you actually want to, you, you can say like, comparatively in this situation, right. I look forward to not existing. That's very different than looking forward to living on as a spirit or reuniting with your family. In your second example, there's no acceptance of death at all. There's, there's, it's a denial of death. They exist uh, at the same time. Yes, but I'm saying they're very different psychological responses. Uh, they're extremely different. In fact, if what I'm looking forward, if, if, if what I want is for my consciousness to end because I'm suffering, then the second perspective that I will actually not cease to be, that I will live on as a spirit, you know, is, 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 those are totally different reactions. Yeah, so there, there are all sorts of contradictory... Yeah. Uh, but that's how really the mind works. The yeah. mind is not a uh, yes, linear... It functions right. at very different levels. People will talk about just what you're saying on yeah. the one hand and yeah. the other hand. So they'll say they're, they'll look forward to, to yeah. dying and to ending their life, and the same person will then say, and then I can be together with my parents right. and my sister who's dead. Yeah. But in the way they might talk about it, they'll talk about it, they'll be there perfectly healthy. Right. right. So we, we, we're capable <laughs> of those kinds of, course, of inconsistency. What I'm saying is that, that that's because they're actually still afraid of death, and I sympathize with that. But I wouldn't say that those are testimonies to how you are not afraid of death or have come to terms with death. That seems to me that whole testimony you're giving is a testimony to how incredibly difficult it is to face the prospect of dying and how many contradictory fantasies you come up with to shield off that prospect. So it doesn't, uh, and, and I have a lot of empathy with that, but I, but I don't think it is an example of how you, of someone who has accepted death. Uh, and I don't think, yeah. And well, again, I don't, I, I'm not I, sure In fact, should. I think that people do accept death, many of them. Well, in, in your clinical experience, yeah. I mean, it, you, you, learn a, you learn a tremendous amount about how adaptable the mind is uh, when you talk to people who are dying. They're, they're great teachers of uh, uh, what, how, to, how to deal with life, in fact. Okay, thanks. He works at Memorial. May I say, first of all, I really appreciate that you came here for a conversation and you didn't come and read your statements. Uh, 
I think we'd all be much better off if we went with Polly and lived in the present. But aren't we pretty much stuck with Adam and in that there's an uh, evolutionary advantage to living in the future? And uh, those, those people are the ones who, who, who survived. Well, it is arguable as a uh, 12th century Zen writer named Dogen uh, said that the future occurs in the present, the past occurs in the present. And because of that, there really isn't a present either, but uh, things arise in the present and we pay attention in terms of the way we direct our actions. And so there, we can direct our thoughts and actions towards the imagined future and also our prefrontal cortex tends to head us in that way towards prediction and reliability, that sort of thing. At the same time, we can become aware that we're doing that and that, that there are choices within the present. As it arises, it's about three to 10 seconds. It's not an absolute present, but we can become aware of what is going on and where we want to direct our awareness. And that's really what's meant by living in the present. So it's not avoiding prediction or the future, nor is it avoiding thoughts and feelings about the past, but the recognition that those are taking place in the present. So that's maybe not so different from pattern recognition. Yeah. Well, please join me in thanking our uh, And please, short of my barring the door, please fill out the uh, post-roundtable surveys. We really depend on your feedback. Uh, thanks again for coming. Thank you.